Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. There are polls that, that, that track religious affiliation. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Hindu. I'm a Muslim. You know what? One of the categories, one of the options is none. I'm nothing. And we're not talking I go to a non-denominational church or I go to an independent church. We're just saying I'm nothing. I'm not into that at all. And, uh, Coincidentally, even Cal Thomas in the newspaper yesterday, if you read his editorials, uh, he referred to it yesterday. 32%, nearly a third of those polled say they're nothing. They're nothing. Now, that ought to disturb us because that number has been gradually rising. But, you know, there's something else that ought to disturb us probably even more. In those same polls, they'll then have follow-up questions about, you know, just how much are you really into what you say you are? And in our brand of Christianity, us evangelicals, you know one of the things they've been seeing for the last couple decades? Generally speaking, not talking about you, because you guys are all super saints, but uh, just talking about the other people at all the other churches on Moore's Lane, uh, all... Generally speaking, those of us in this brand of Christianity, we are less committed almost every time they take one of those polls. We, we, we hold to those truths a little more loosely. Uh, we're, we maybe have a few more doubts about this thing or that thing or something else in our theology. And we kind of back it up with our actions because, you know, you, you, you pull about religious activity, read your Bible, go to church, give money, serve somewhere in the church. And all of those things are declining as well. We're becoming much more people who attend church rather than people who are the church. And, you know, all of that ought to be really disturbing to us, particularly when we go to Scripture and we, we see what Scripture says we ought to be like. When you trust Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you ought to then strive, put yourself on a track towards becoming what at least here at Fellowship, we call a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. You look at the bulletin, you see it on other pieces of literature. You know, why does Fellowship Bible Church exist? We exist to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what? That this cavalier, casual Christianity that that our brand of Christianity seems to be drifting to, I mean, that is just almost polar opposites. I mean, when you read through the New Testament and you see the kind of commitment we ought to have towards Jesus Christ, 
I mean, it is a radical commitment. It is, it is an all-in commitment. That's what Jesus calls us to. And yet, where we know, and I think all of us would agree, generally speaking, we're getting further and further and further away from that radical commitment. Now, I bring all that up today because we're going to get to a really interesting passage of Scripture, two passages of Scripture, in fact, today, that talk about how uh, we are to really be radical followers of Jesus Christ. And yet, it's hard. It's tough. There's, there's challenges. And uh, so we're, we're going to see that in the, these passages, and uh, you'll be able to track with it here in just a minute. Now, we're walking through Matthew. This fall, we're, we're taking these big, giant steps through the story of Jesus Christ as it is told to us from Matthew. Remember, in the New Testament, there's four tellings of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, told Jesus' story from a different vantage point. There's total agreement, but, but Matthew was emphasizing the fact that Jesus came as the king. And so he's throwing in a lot of information, a lot of details relative to the fact that Jesus is the king who promised a kingdom. And so we've seen Jesus be introduced as the king. We've seen him kind of lay out his, his vision of what that kingdom should look like. And then now we're in the point of the story where basically Jesus is kind of being vetted by the people. You know, if this was a presidential campaign that Jesus was launching, it's like he's announced his candidacy, he's laid out his vision, that was the Sermon on the Mount, and now he's tromping through Iowa and New Hampshire, the two places that had the early primaries, helping those people see just who he is. And we're at this point in chapters 8 and 9 where there's a really interesting uh, literary thing that's going on as Matthew tells this story. This can't be coincidence, okay? Because here's what's going on. In Matthew 8 and 9, it's like Matthew tells three miracles. Then he talks about what it's like to follow Jesus. Then he tells three more miracles Then he tells what it's like to follow Jesus. Then he tells three more miracles, and then he tells what it's like to follow Jesus. It's like back and forth, back and forth. And if you saw the title of uh, the sermon today, and you remember the title of the sermon last week, because it was on this same area of Scripture, last week we were asking the question, is he able to do this? Is Jesus able and willing? Today the question is, are we able Are we willing to be in? Jesus, through these nine miracles that Matthew tells, three, three, and three, we looked last week at the first three, you know, all these incredible healings that he did, where he healed a Gentile, he healed a woman, and he healed a leper. Jesus is able, and Jesus is willing to do it. He's qualified to be the king. Matthew, in the midst of these stories, slips in some information there about, are you guys willing? It's like, 
okay, we're, we're checking out Jesus. It's like Jesus is being vetted. But in a way, we're being vetted too. And it's kind of interesting. There, here's the two passages we're going to look at. The one, little, the little paragraph between chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, where basically Jesus has two potential disciples come up to him and say, make offers to follow him. And in each of those offers, we're going to see a point. We're going to see a characteristic, a reality of what it means to follow Jesus. And then three miracles, then that little paragraph, those two offers, three more miracles, And then guess what? He gets two strategic questions, one from the Pharisees and one from the followers of John the Baptist. And from each of those questions, I think we see two more realities, if you will, of what it means to follow Jesus. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to see four basic realities of what it means to follow Jesus, what it looks like, what you need to Be prepared for if you're going to really be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And so the first paragraph we're going to look at is this one where the two offers are. Turn your Bible to chapter 8, verse 18. Okay? Now, like I said, Jesus or Matthew had just told three really cool miracles. Jesus healed a leper. Jesus healed a Gentile from a distance, no less. And then Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And she was healed instantly and started serving. Well, then Matthew strategically puts in a little information about what does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus Jesus is king. He's qualified. What's it mean to follow him? And the way he tells us the information is through just highlighting two different offers that Jesus got from potential followers. Look at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. Now, remember, they're on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was a pretty huge lake, okay? We hardly would even call it a lake because it was, I think, 10 or 15 miles long. I mean, it's huge, okay? And obviously, the shoreline is jagged. So if you want to get someplace on the lake, it's just easier to get in a boat and just go straight across rather than circumventing the the lake. So a lot of the traveling that Jesus did around that area was just crisscrossing the lake. So after Jesus had, had, had worked that area, he gets into the boat with his disciples. You know, he's got 12 disciples. Eight of them were fishermen, so... Somebody ought to know how to handle a boat, and that's a good way to transport. And so Jesus gives order and says, hey, we're going to the other side. Look at verse 19. As they're getting into the boat, a certain scribe came to and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, let me point out, he's a scribe. Now, Jesus has already picked 12 disciples. Eight of them were fishermen. One's going to be a tax collector. One's going to be a political activist. Quite frankly, other than the tax collector, and who knows what the political activist was, we know he became a traitor, but for one thing. But uh, no, that was the other one. Um, But none of them 
were what we would call white-collar workers. All of them kind of worked with their hands, not their heads. But finally, a scribe comes up. I mean, this is a guy that probably graduated from high school. You know, he might have even got some college in on him. And it's like, we finally got a live one who could come and add some organizational structure. We got, we got a smart one that wants to come follow us. And this guy's enthusiastic. Look at verse 19. I will follow you wherever you go. And I love what Jesus says in verse 20. I mean, he probably even chuckled. He said, oh, really? I'm homeless. Uh, we don't stay. We're not smart enough to stay at Holiday Inn Expresses. Haven't you guys seen the commercials? Were you smart enough to stay at a Holiday Inn? Okay. You guys don't watch enough TV. I don't watch enough TV. You know, we don't even stay at the Motel 6, even if they leave the light on. That's another one of their advertisements. Just trying to wake you guys up. What did the rain keep you in sleep in that mode? Okay. Jesus said, Jesus said, really? You really want to follow me wherever I go? I'm homeless. Look at verse 20. The foxes have a hole. The birds have the air and nest. The son of man, that's me. I don't have nowhere to lay my head. I mean, in a way, this guy came up to Jesus and he had not counted the cost. And Jesus said, let me tell you, following me is not a weekend retreat at some cool camp like Pine Cove or Brook Hill or Sky Ranch or whatever your favorite Bible conference place is. I mean, it is hard. It is difficult. This guy had not counted the cost. And I think right there, there, there's a point. One of the realities of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is a recognition that it's difficult. And I, I dare say it is more difficult to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ than it is to just be a cavalier Christian or an unbeliever. Why? Because there's an enemy. There's opposition. He wants to ruin Sunday mornings. He wants to ruin quality time with your spouse or with your kids. He wants to take you and in those strategic moments frustrate you so that you don't do well in representing Jesus Christ. I mean, you sign on to follow Jesus Christ your hotel reservation might get lost in the Internet somewhere and you show up and you don't have a place to lay your head. And you're there at the desk trying to be a Christ-like Christian to some minimum wage worker. And we'll see how nice you are, how, can't, how sweet you are, how pleasant you are when your hotel reservation got canceled or worse. Uh, Usually I lose my cool when my airplane reservation gets lost. It's terrible. It is difficult to follow Jesus Christ. And that's just a reality that all of us need to recognize. When you're signing on to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, you're not signing on for 
a weekend at Sandals. You're signing on to a difficult time. In a way, this guy, he was like the hasty disciple. This next guy, he's like the hesitant disciple. Look look at it, verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own. Or like the King James has it, let the dead bury the dead. Now, what's going on here? Well, in truth, we're not exactly sure. But one of the things we're really sure of, just the way it's worded, we're pretty sure it cannot be this. It can't be that Jesus was there preaching and, you know, this guy was really getting into it, really getting into it. I'm all in. And then his phone buzzed and he looked and he found out that his dad died. And his brother saying, you got to get home. The funeral's Thursday. And so it's not like this guy went up to Jesus after church and said, hey, I am all in. But I can't get in the boat right now because I got to go bury my dad. But can I meet you in Capernaum on Friday and I'll be there for the rest of the time? That's not what's went on. Here's what probably was going on. This guy was sitting there listening to Jesus and he was getting all in. But he was saying, you know, this is just not the right time. Because, you know, if I start following him, you know, this is in the days when dads change their wills. This is in the days when, you know, if dad dies and brother's been doing all the work, brother's going to get all the inheritance and I'm going to get left out in the cold because I've been following this rabbi all over Galilee. And so it's almost like, who knows, knows how old dad is, but it's almost like the guy sat and thought about it and it's like, Jesus, as soon as life gets more convenient, as soon as it gets more, you know, favorable for me to be able to have it all, great spiritual life plus a nice inheritance, then I'll come follow you. And I think that's actually what's going on. And so it's almost like this guy, he didn't realize how inconvenient sometimes and maybe even costly it is to follow Jesus. Being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is difficult. And sometimes it's inconvenient and maybe even costly. You might have to give up a promotion. You might have to decline a transfer. You might even get set aside because your biblical convictions may not fit with the culture of that company. Why? Because you are seeking to be a fully devoted follower of Christ and you just can't do that. And so it actually does impact your paycheck. By the way, look at that that verse 22. I love that. What does Jesus say to him? Follow me. I mean, no. Come now. Let the dead bury the dead. Uh, A lot of you know that my dad was a pastor. And my dad had a pretty colorful personality. And I was the baby, baby of the family. I'm like six years younger than the next brothers up. So in a way, I was kind of like the only child. And uh, 
My dad, he did a pile of funerals. I mean, it just seemed like people were dying all the time, and he was always going off and doing a funeral. And back in the day, you know, I guess the our, the school I went to had a pretty liberal uh, absence uh, absentee policy because he would be like, hey, I got a funeral. I need you to come. And so as an 11-year-old, I went to the funeral. As a 12-year-old, I went to the funeral. My dad was really high tech, and he had one of those portable uh, tape players, and he couldn't find someone to sing. So he had these these recordings of my sister singing. And so I was the sound man, and it was my job to turn it on. And there's my sister singing the old rugged cross out in the middle of some cemetery there in Salt Lake City. And... Uh, you know, it was kind of fun. It sure beat math or science or whatever we were doing in that day. Probably that's why I never got an A till I got to high school. But, but you know, that was my childhood. And, and one of the things that I thought was just so cool, my dad always loved to ride in the hearse on the way to the cemetery. So we'd, the funerals at the great, at the, you know, the home, the funeral home. And then we got to get in the hearse and drive out to the thing. And, and if I was with them, you know, I got to ride with them. So it's the funeral director, little Richard sitting in the middle, and Big John over here, Wild John over here. And, and I mean, the casket's right there. I mean, I could turn around and tap it, you know. And, and I did that dozens of times. And it was, it was so fun and really cool. And invariably, invariably, my dad, I mean, because he loved to share Christ. And he loved to talk about the gospel. And usually because of where we were raised, that that funeral director, we were pretty sure, wasn't a believer. And my dad would say, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that I just can't. I I just wondered what you thought about it since this is your business. What do you think Jesus meant in Matthew 8, verse uh, 22? And the guy's like, I don't know. What does Romans or uh, Matthew 8, 22 say? Well, it says, let the dead bury the dead. What do you, what do you think that means? The dead. I mean, is this person back here going to bury someone else? Is that, you know, and, and, and then my dad had the opportunity. The guy usually was like, Oh my goodness. And usually the, the procession speeded up because it's like, we got to get to the funeral. I got to get this guy out of here because this guy, who knows where this conversation is going. And my dad would say, you know what I think it means? And I'm pretty sure it means it. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. And it is what Jesus said. Let the people who care nothing about spiritual things, let them take care of the mundane things of life because you've got something more important. Even if it's inconvenient, even if it costs you. Okay, that's the, that's the first little paragraph on this thing. Two more things we're going to see. Remember I talked about how, how this, this, this passage of Scripture, three miracles, little conversation about what it means to follow Jesus. Three more miracles, and those miracles are found in uh, uh, chapter 8, starts about verse 23, all the way down to chapter 9, verse 8. Three more miracles. Then we're going to have another conversation about it. And in this conversation about following Jesus, it's like it's basically Jesus getting two questions, one from the Pharisees, and one from John the Baptist's folks. So look at chapter 9, verse 9. Now, this is kind of cool because Matthew is basically telling his story. 
Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew. Matthew's the guy that wrote this. Sitting in the tax office. And no doubt, you know, we just kind of learn it from other passages of Scripture. This wasn't the first time Jesus saw Matthew or Matthew saw Jesus. But he saw Matthew and he said, Matthew, follow me. And it's like at that moment, it clicked. And Matthew is like, I'm in. I'm following. And what's the first thing Matthew does? Because Matthew's actually kind of wealthy because he's, you know, used all this money that he pilfered out of the tax system. He has a big dinner at his house, probably that night even. Verse 10, and it happened that as he was reclining at table in the house, and we learn from the other gospels, in Matthew's house, behold, many other tax gatherers there were there, and sinners, they came and joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. It's like Matthew invited his friends. Who are his friends? Tax gatherers, sinners, probably a prostitute or two poured in there as well. And when the Pharisees, verse 11, saw this, they didn't have the guts to ask Jesus. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax gatherers and sinners? But when Jesus overheard this, Jesus answered. He said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but it is those who are ill. What what was he saying there? He wasn't saying, you Pharisees are so righteous and so wonderful, you don't need healing. What he was saying is, you guys, he wasn't affirming them in their self-righteousness, not at all. What he's doing here is he is, is basically saying, you know what? I came for sinners. And until a person gets to the place where they recognize their sin, There's nothing I can do for them. You know, back to my dad. My dad used to love to say, you can't get a person saved till you get them lost. The only people that trust Christ are lost people. Sinners who recognize they're bankrupt. And and basically what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is, guys, these tax cuts, Oh, what did I just do there? Back it up there if you wouldn't mind. These tax gatherers, these tax gatherers, <laughs> this is all for emphasis because some, some of you guys need some conviction, okay? <laughs> this is the Holy Spirit's doing, okay? These tax gatherers didn't think they knew they needed a Savior. And so they're all in with Jesus. The Pharisees, they had not gotten to the point in their life where they had had the humility to look in the mirror and say, I need the Savior. Jesus strategically quotes that Bible verse in verse 13 there. Out of Hosea 6, verse 6, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. And so right there, I think you see another 
reality of following Christ. It's hard. It's inconvenient. It might even be costly. And it's humbling. Because when you stop needing Jesus because God loves you so much and realizes that's a cruddy way to look at yourself, an inappropriate way to look at yourself, God just even allows those humbling situations to come into your life. These Pharisees didn't have the humility to recognize their their need for Christ. A fully devoted follower of Christ better be ready for some difficulty, better be ready for some inconvenience, better be ready and prepared to keep their heart humble before God and recognize they need Jesus. The absolute worst thing I can do right now, the worst thing you can do if you've trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, is is allow that little thing inside of you to grow that says, I don't need Christ, I can handle this. That, that's just disastrous. And what God does is in his love, he puts in something that knocks us down a little bit more on that humility thing. Those times when you're sitting there saying, why is this happening? Why is this going against me? This is so humiliating. Maybe it's there because God recognize that sometimes the pride in our heart needed to be knocked down. Maybe he's done it because he wants us to manifest that humility. And people are saying, man, look at what he went through. Look at what she's going through. And they have not cursed God. I want what they have. It's difficult. It's inconvenient. It's humbling. But you know what? Here's the best thing. It is fulfilling. It's incredible. It is filled with joy. The Pharisees asked a question. Guess who else asked a question? John the Baptist's people. Look at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Okay, help us out on this one. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples are partying? I mean, you guys are having a party, and we're over here fasting. What's up with that? And look at verse 15. Jesus said, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? I mean, I've been to some pretty sorry weddings, but even the sorry weddings, the people are, seem to be happy. The bridesmaids are happy. The groomsmen are happy. The bride's happy. The groom's happy. Probably the only people that aren't happy are the parents that are paying for it, you know? I mean, I mean it, it, it's a party. And Jesus is saying, you know what? When you get into relationship with me, it is like going to a drop-dead killer wedding. Great food, lovely decorations, and everything happens just the way it's supposed to happen. Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days are going to come when the bridegroom is taken away. 
And then they'll fast. There's going to be tough times. But boy, when you are connected to Christ, it's time to party. It's time to enjoy the feast. And then look at this. It's, it's always cryptic. And it's like, what does this mean? Verse 16 and 17. He says, no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Because then when it all gets washed, that patch pulls away from the old garment. When it's, and the worst tear results. Verse 17. You don't take new wine and put it in an old wineskin. Otherwise, the wineskin bursts and the wine pours out. You lose it all. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's basically saying, folks, when you enter into relationship with me, don't expect to live your life the old way. If you take this new life, this new creation in Christ, and try to put it into the old self, it's going to be chaos. It's going to be a disaster. Things are going to burst, and it ain't going to work. The only way to do it is to take that new creation and put it into the new life that Jesus has for you. And so just to summarize it, let me just put it this way. There are a ton of believers out there, people that are supposed to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, who are just downright miserable and their lives are chaotic because they're taking that new creation in Christ and trying to live it out in an old, carnal, unbelieving way. They're trying to look like unbelievers and try to act like unbelievers and get along with unbelievers as if there's no difference between them. And Jesus is saying, you can't. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things passed away, new things came. You are in the world. You're not part of the world. You're not of the world. This this is a new paradigm for you. You are new wine. So don't go trying to put it into an old wineskin. And... What he is saying there is, if you want this fulfillment, if you want this feasting, if you want this partying, if you want it to be like you're at an incredible wedding, even though it's difficult, even though it's inconvenient, even though sometimes it's costly, even though sometimes it's humbling, if you want that fulfillment, that joy, don't go trying to put your new wine into an old wineskin. Don't go trying to put your new life in Christ into an old carnal, pagan lifestyle. It is time to come out radically and say, you know what? I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. No turning back. All of this that, that, that we've seen in, in these two little sandwiches between the three miracles, the three miracles, and the three miracles, these two little paragraphs that have this information on discipleship, it's all about following Jesus Christ. And this is information for us, for those of us who have said, we're in, we've trusted him as Savior. We want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. What he's saying there is, man, you got to recognize, don't be too hasty, certainly don't be too hesitant. It's hard, it's difficult. And it's often often inconvenient. And yeah, there's times when it's humiliating in the eyes of the world. But let me tell you, if you want that joy, that fulfillment, it's there. Because when you are in relationship with the bridegroom and you're the bride, it is so sweet. And that's what Jesus is likening our relationship with him too.
He says, I want to be your husband. I want to be in relationship with you. I want it to be sweet and loving. But you can't take and try to put it into an old system. You got to be all in and come all the way there. Have you done that? Is that the mentality you have? I'll be honest. I get hung up on how difficult it is sometimes. It drives me nuts. I get hung up on how it, sometimes it's inconvenient. It costs me. I get hung up when in the eyes of the world I look humiliated again and again and again. And I try to resist the temptation to brag on something if I've got anything in my life to brag about. It's all there. And you know what? I bet it's all there for you. When you really go hard for Christ and you say, I'm, like, I'm going to be in this office and I'm going to be the light and the salt. I'm going to be in this neighborhood and I'm going to be the light and the salt. I'm in this relationship and I'm going to be the light and the salt. I'm going to be Jesus Christ. Manifesting the mind of Christ. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be at times humiliating. But what Jesus said is, man, it's also fulfilling. The sacrifice is nothing compared to the joy. Compared to the joy. Do you know that? Do you know that? Let's pray. Father, I do want to thank you for just the privilege that we have to uh, just think deeply about what it means to follow Christ. Father, if there's someone here that has not even trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that today they would trust in him, whom to know is life eternal. The one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. But, Father, for the vast majority of us that, that have trusted Christ, I pray, Father, that today we would uh, we'd recognize the cost and the commitment and uh, just how radical this uh, calling really is. And I pray, Father, we'd step up despite the difficulties, despite the cost despite the uh, humiliation at times. And Father, I, I really do pray that we would know that joy. We'd know that fulfillment. Uh, Father, some of us here are tired and worn out. And we need, to, uh, we need a taste of that new wine. We need to uh, see and hear and feel that joy that uh, you offer to us. And so, Lord, we, uh, we just really pray for that today. For it's in Jesus' name, amen.